You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Okay, if you have not heard about Cash App, you're going to love me. You want more from all these free apps used for just free and fast money transfers, right? Well, I've got the hookup for you. The Cash App. The Cash App card is a free Visa debit card that lets you use your Cash App balance to pay online and in stores. It's also the only way to get Boost. Now, let me tell you about Boost because it's exclusive to Cash App. Boost are reusable instant discounts that work at places you actually go to, everywhere from Starbucks to Walmart to even the PlayStation Network store. You can do so much more than buy and save money with this. You can even purchase shares of stock in companies you love by investing as little as $1. Banking is also made easy. With Cash App, you can directly deposit paychecks, tax returns, and more to your Cash App balance using the unique account and routing numbers. And if you don't think things can get any cooler, it does by allowing you to buy and sell Bitcoin, the money of the future. Selling and receiving money on Cash App is as easy as entering a phone number, using another user's name, or simply scanning a QR code. Hit the special link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. That is, use that link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. So go on. Go ahead and hit that link in the show notes and get set up with Cash App today. So whether I'm speaking to a crowded barroom about the principles of liberty, gushing over my love of Ayn Rand on a panel at Freedom Fest, or speaking to college kids about how the world of media and politics really function, I'm always meeting bright-eyed, bushy-tailed wannabe Hemingways with the potential for the next great American novel or book sitting right in their head. We live in a time where it's easier than ever to write, publish, and promote your book, but knowing how to do so and do so correctly is the biggest obstacle for many new authors. I've consulted for many authors writing everything from memoirs to how-to guides, and not one of them has the same path to success. If you're sitting on a completed manuscript wondering what to do next, or you need some one-on-one guidance on how to complete your book, I'm here to help you write, publish, and succeed. Email me today at the subject line, book, and I'll provide a 15-minute free consultation absolutely free. Oh, I already mentioned it was free. How about that? 15 minutes free. Check out my email in the show notes today and contact me with the subject line book for your free 15-minute private one-on-one author's consultation. And let's get started on your road to success. yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. So here we are once again. It's another midnight recording and I'm just going to go ahead and apologize up front because one, I always find that the best ideas I have, the great idea fairy always tends to come visit me at night when I should probably be going to sleep like a normal person. Secondly, um, I just took a bunch of medications that are going to make me sound really, really drowsy, and this whole thing might go off on a tangent, but I've also learned through writing multiple books that it's either going to be medication or alcohol that brings about the spurts of brightness, and I don't really dig alcohol these days, so I guess you're left with this. And third, um, I don't know what's with my cats, but they become a couple of crackheads at night. Right now, I'm in the basement. 
And I, I can hear both of them literally like crashing into shit and trying to open up um, doors and things. And what's really crazy is like we, we, we've got two cats. One of them is Wolf. He's a Chantilly Tiffany. He's a big cat. He's kind of like a Maine Coon. We think he might be some Maine Coon, but he's um, he's a big like 17 pound cat. He's a miniature lion. It's crazy. And then we've got our midget cat, Harper who I don't, I don't understand her. She's quiet during the day. She does her own thing. And then at night, she just comes alive, and she's meowing, and she's trying to eat stuff, and she's trying to get into the cabinets. And, like, I can hear her. It's like she's stomping upstairs. It's actually kind of freaky. It's like that movie. Ah, shoot. I forget what it's called. Basically, those two kids are sent by their mom to go hang out with their grandparents for the summer, but the grandparents are actually dead, and their bodies are in the cellar. Because these two crazy people who broke out of an insane asylum broke out and killed the grandparents and basically like took over their lives. And the kids have never seen the grandparents or something like that, so they don't know any better. And basically at night, the one woman pretending to be grandma, she'll like run around the house naked, like crawling on walls and stuff. And because the kids know something's up, but they're too afraid to go actually see what's going on at night, the one kid leaves a camera outside and he films all this stuff and basically crazy naked grandmas running around the house. And it was a whole thing. Like the, the film has like a real crazy ending. And then it kind of upsets you because like spoiler alert, because I don't even remember the name. And it's been at least 10 years. Um, basically, the kids live and they go back home and uh, crazy grandma and grandpa impersonators go go to jail and. The end of the film is with the credits rolling and the kids are just saying karaoke like nothing just happened. I would be traumatized as all hell if that happened to me. But, you know, it is uh, it is what it is. Anyway, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. Either way, my cats are crazy. And they're going to be running around all night. But you didn't hear, you did not come here for that. You came here for me to go ahead and take some of my precious knowledge, my uh, my battle scars, my infamous journeys of past lore and uh, you're, you're here to get some information on that. This is something that I've wanted to do for a while and I've always wondered how I'm going to do it because it's always evolving. I've thought about offering a like a Udemy class on this. I've thought about writing a book about it. Um, but I think the best thing to do is to just go with it when the idea comes to mind and whatever idea sounds best I'll go with because I think this is something that I can continually work on because there's many different ways to uh, you know help people with it maybe a book is good in some cases maybe I can make a class where I take these points and I can really um, you know give you some exercises and applicable situations where you know you can actually try these things out yourself in more of a classroom environment online but i thought for now you know a podcast is great for this because i can just kind of rant for a little bit and tell you more about um my time as a freelance journalist so first i want to go ahead and get the terms right um first when i say freelance journalist what does that mean one that means that i was not contractually bound to any one uh, news outlet or publication. Secondly, I say journalist and not reporter because a reporter just covers news and they don't come at it from a bias and they only do news. I was a journalist. If anything, I was a 
commentary journalist, an opinion journalist, because I was investigating things from a certain angle, and I also did commentary. So sometimes it was in regards to stuff I was actually investigating, putting forth the reporting process of going, finding a story, reporting a story, and dishing out the facts. But I also did it from a certain view of things, and I also just wrote opinion pieces. Um, There are pundits who don't really do any of that. They're commentators, and I fell into that camp sometimes because I'll go on uh, podcasts and shows and radio shows and stuff and talk about things as a commentator. But I saw myself, and I still see myself very much as a opinion journalist in like the Hunter Thompson sense. So that's what I was doing. And I did that from my, uh, my senior year of college all the way up until, uh, what was it, probably, pro- yeah, probably June 2019. It was right around the time that I got the job at the Washington Times as the uh, social media coordinator. So what we're talking about is a good three years of freelancing. And let me tell you, it is one of the hardest experiences ever because I had to work a couple extra jobs to keep myself going. I was still somewhat involved in politics, so um, and I don't advise that. If you're going to get into media, stay out of campaigns. But I was doing that, and uh, that, that had some perks to it because I got access to a lot of things. I got a lot of insights to certain things, but it also cut me off from things because people didn't know what to do with me because they couldn't tell whether I was going to help them fight against them or write about them. And, uh, you know, I know some people who do that and, you know, while they say they might have it down in spades and everything is, you know, cooking of Crisco, I, yeah, I, if, if I could do it again, I would have said, hey, man, you got to stick to one thing. You're either going to go into media or you're going to go into campaigns. You can't do both. But I learned a lot of great skills from it. And my time freelancing really did eventually prepare me for the world of professional media and without that experience, I don't think I would have gotten my job. I certainly wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the great things I have done since. It taught me a lot of things that I would have never known otherwise, especially since I was not a journalism major in college. But the one really cool thing is that I do know a lot of people who I graduated with who were journalism students. And let me tell you, by the time that they got their job if they went into media and I got mine, I had a much, much larger portfolio of work under my belt. I was podcasting, I was doing documentaries, I was writing, I was hustling. I still hustle, but back then there was no money in it. And, um, you know, sometimes I get paid, but you, if I told you the rates that I charged for things then, and I mean, yeah, I've got kind of a premium now, but like I still don't make much from little side projects now. Back then, I was broke as a joke, but I was lucky I had a supportive family at the time. I had a great supportive uh, group of people who were helping me when I needed it. And ultimately, all good things happen for a reason. As Marcus Aurelius once said, the obstacle in the way is the way. And I took that mindset then without really think of it that, thinking of it that way. And ultimately, I came out a better person and a better journalist out of it. And I wouldn't change it for the world. So here are the 10 things I learned as a freelance journalist. And these aren't in like a hierarchy or order. It's just the order of which I... Uh, thought of them and this will probably update over time but here are the things that really you know came to me as I was thinking about this 
little sip of my Arizona tea. I never drink Arizona tea when I'm podcasting. It's usually a Coke or Jack and Coke, but one second. Okay, number 10. You need to be a full man crew. One of the things that really inspired me to you know focus on being independent was the stuff that people like um, Tim Pool did at the time. For those of you that know Tim Pool, you know that he was basically the father of live streaming. He, um, I think he actually coined the term live streaming too, or he was the first person to really use it in a sense. And he was live streaming what was really going down during the Occupy movement. And he will tell you as a uh, as an independent person, you know, someone who's not bound to any company or board or whatever, as a completely independent journalist. He has to do everything. He's got to drive himself everywhere. He's got to do all his scheduling. He has to do all his editing. He has to do all his filming. He has to do all his recording. He has to do all his promotion. You've got to do everything. I mean, really, when you are an independent freelancing journalist, you have to be your own driver. You have to be your own photographer. You got to be your own social media manager. You got to be your own promoter. You got to edit your stuff. It's hard. At the time, I had my brother Ryan, who was the producer for my first podcast, um, he did a lot of the editing and promoting, uh, mainly in in terms of podcast stuff. If I was going and actually reporting a story elsewhere, he really didn't have much to do with it. But like I, I um, I I paid him as much as I could. I couldn't always pay him, but like we were trying to build something together. He was more on the business end. I was more the face of the project at the time, and it was it it was what it was. It was it was difficult. And I remember there would be nights where I'm like eating dinner on my couch and then I get a tip about a story. And next thing I'm driving halfway across the state on my own dime. And it's it, it, it's it, it makes me so thankful, you know, that I understand that and I appreciate it more because I'm a lot more efficient when it comes to a lot of things that would slow down a lot of people but i also have a greater appreciation for the help and assistance from other people getting to work in a newsroom you get to really understand the jobs that everyone else does and it's one of those things that makes you really understand the craft of it because ultimately if you're going out and you're writing stories and you're investigating news you have to have a passion for it, and the passion has to be truth. The passion has to be reporting things that you know other people aren't going to. Which brings me to point number nine. Sometimes you will be the only, quote, media there. L- let me tell you something. On uh, At the Washington Times, I produced a digital series with columnist Tim Young, and it was called On the Road of Tim Young. And basically... Uh, during the height of the pandemic, Tim ran out of D.C., and he was basically like, I'm going to go on a cross-country trip across America and see what's going on from the view of working-class Americans who have been put out of work and their lives have been halted because of what's going on. And we had many important people reach out to us and say, hey, you're doing some of the best corona coverage that anyone is doing. I mean, big people. It would shock you, the folks that reached out to us. And these are big people. But here's the thing. Tim is just running around, recording, filming, live streaming, using his freaking iPhone. He's traveling on planes, trains, and automobiles, probably hitchhiking at some points, crashing on people's couches. And he's getting, you know, completely great, you know, just great content that, I mean, it's... Disney would pay thousands, millions for the type of stuff that Tim was getting. But 
you know, he's doing that just using an iPhone. And then you look at your reg- your regular reporter or journalist, and I mean they don't go anywhere unless they're going on the company card or they got a driver waiting for them. Then they have a committed team of people to do everything for them, and people who are working with thousands of dollars worth of equipment. It's it's really that Gonzo spirit of you know really roughing it that really reminds me that at its core journalism is really a blue collar job. You might not think of that because of a lot of the over-credentialized rich people we see telling people how life is really working on TV. But at its core, a lot of reporters and journalists don't make a lot, and a lot of work gets put into the stuff that we create that you don't often see. So understand that sometimes you might be the only person reporting on a story because often an editor or a producer will already have a story in mind because they're looking at their competitors and they're just trying to get a different edge or different angle on something. I remember going to uh, rallies. I remember going to a lot of stuff that you would think that the media would be at, but no one ever went to. Case in point, in 20, I think it was 2018, 2019, um, Gary Johnson, yeah, so this was after, this was after 2016, of course, but um, Gary Johnson was basically suing the Commission on Presidential Debates. He had the guy that sued the Nixon administration there. He had people from the Green Party. He had Larry Sharp before Larry Sharp was running for governor. Actually, I think he was running for governor of New York at the time. And they're holding this, actually, a pretty decent-sized rally for a weekday, and the weather wasn't great either. I think about 100, 100-plus people showed up, and this is right in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Let me tell you, um, CNN and Fox were a few miles up the road. The Washington Post was pretty close by. You had all these people. It was a, I remember it was a pretty boring news day. You would have thought that having a very popular former governor and two-time presidential candidate and a bunch of other people actually coming together to sue the Commission on Presidential Debates, you think that that would be local news at minimum. But I showed up and I saw my friend Ford Fisher there. For those of you that know Ford Fisher, Ford Fisher from News to Share is also an independent journalist. But he wasn't there as a journalist. He was there because he was contracted by Our America Initiative, who was putting on the whole shindig, and he was filming everything for later. So if you take Ford out of there, because he's technically working a different angle on that, um, I was the only person there. And I was just really doing the podcast at the time. And I was taking photos. I was interviewing people. I was taking recordings. Um, it, it was amazing how nobody basically showed up. And I talked to Ford about that. And he was like, yeah, um, this is ridiculous. I remember he went on Facebook later and he made a comment about that. He's like, we're in the most powerful city in the world. And this is typically something that would be considered a pretty important story. At least it would be something that a reporter could go ahead and you know fast file and get published, so at least he had something interesting um, that he can go ahead and target to certain readers online and get some good clicks out of it. But nobody did. And I remember he was like, you know, it, there, there was no mainstream press there. You had podcasters like Remso Martinez who showed up and did the best he could. And, I mean, that's more than what most people would expect. And unless you knew about it and you were within that, you know, third party sphere of stuff, unless you were part of that inner circle of people that cared about that news, you weren't going to see it on your local news. You weren't even going to see it on your cable news outlets. It's because things go on all the time and they 
the, you know, the, the mainstream media ultimately decides what's going to be the story. So sometimes understand that when you do this, you might be the only person that actually sheds light on something. And I got a ton of traffic about it, not because I, you know, I produced the best content telling people what happened, but because I was the only person doing it. And it completely shocked me. That was one of those big moments where I realized, wow, if I wasn't here talking about this, nobody would. And it's, um, you know, it's humbling in a way because it shows you that you have the ability to reach more people and help drive a conversation that, you know, the so-called professionals don't do. Maybe it's because they don't care. Maybe it's because they don't want to. I rarely think it's because it's ignorance, but understand you might be the only person there doing that. Uh, And then the next thing is, you know, come prepared, but be ready to drop everything. Um, there, there have been occasions where I went somewhere because I thought a story might happen, but I wasn't thinking of questions. I wasn't thinking of, you know, if I know someone who's going to be there, should I go talk to them? Um, I, I learned very fast early on that I need to do that. So I always went to places um, with a mindset of who do I want to talk to? What angle am I going at? What questions do I want to ask? And what time frame am I giving myself to accomplish all of this? That's something you need to do. I mean, you need to do that for everything in life, but especially this, because once the event is over, once the story is done and it's time to go ahead and, you know, write or record or do whatever, I mean, that moment's dead. It's not coming back. But, you know, one thing I learned, I only saw this when I would go with some other people to tag along from different outlets, so that way we could both work and collaborate on a story together, is we would both go there with a preset mindset of what we're going to do, how we're going to attack it, and how we're going to go ahead and push things forward. But the one thing I noticed was, you know, situations that involve people, whether they're rallies, whether they're they're meetings, whatever, things change. Situations change. So I remember going to a rally in, in a, at the University of Virginia. It was a town hall with my former boss, Congressman Tom Garrett, and he had a bunch of people protesting outside. I had an idea. I went with somebody, and he had an idea. And what I noticed was because the whole situation changed, people who were not supposed to show up showed up. Uh, people that you didn't think would be there were there, and you know the, the conversation changed. He went with a very narrow mindset of what who we wanted to talk to. So he missed on opportunities to find a story otherwise. It was the first time I ran across Corey Stewart. Um, we were only really supposed to talk to protesters and stuff, but I saw him, and then I um, I asked him a question, and I think I think I asked him uh, if liberals attacking free speech triggered him, and he didn't know what would happen. Well, I mean, he didn't know how to properly respond, but he he was a good sport. He gave an answer and was like, "This is an attack on free speech. This is a war on free speech," and it was um, you know it was it was interesting, but that that actually ended up becoming the story. And if I had just been like, okay, I only want to talk to protesters and stuff, I probably wouldn't have done that. You have to be willing to see opportunities as they come. And even though you're prepared with, you know, some questions and, you know, an, uh, an attitude of where you want to go, you got to be willing to change it. Stories are fluid. People are fluid. So be prepared, but also be prepared to drop everything at a moment's notice. Okay, number seven. If it's not on camera, it didn't happen. This is the beautiful thing about technology. It allows you to capture everyone in the moment. And depending on privacy laws, especially of cameras, if you're out in the public and you're filming something, 
uh, people can't say, oh, don't fill me, and then they can potentially sue you. It's one thing if you're on a phone call and you don't tell anyone it's recorded. It's one thing if you go on a private property and you're filming something, then you, you get into some legal issues with that. But other than that, if you're out in public, if you're at a park, if you're anywhere that's a, considered a public space, you could film people. Um, I know people who have had great stories that turned into a he said, she said moment because they didn't get it on camera. But, you know, even though you might be working on like a written article, for example, and you can't necessarily put film or audio in there, you got to have that stuff as a backup. I went with uh, Ford Fisher to a Andrew Yang rally when he went in, uh, I think it was April of 2019, 2018. Yeah, I think it was April 2019. Uh, He came to D.C. and he did a rally and I wrote a piece about it for the American conservative. And, you know, I had a lot of uh, direct quotes from people I interviewed. I had a lot of um, photos I took. I, you know, that's one of the few. I don't, I don't, I don't consider myself a photographer. I always saw that as just an extra part of doing what I needed to do. But that story at the American Conservative about what I saw at the Andrew Yang rally, that was one of the only times I've actually used a photo that I have actually taken as a as a featured image. It's just just a cool thought. But anyway, I did that, and Ford Fisher, who was live streaming the whole thing to News to Share, he he included me in the live stream. So hey, I was also on camera. I had a dude from some obscure, crazy lefty blog say that I was lying about things and that I wasn't there and that I needed to, uh, you know, be fired even though I wasn't working for the American Conservative at the time. And that everyone needs to issue a retraction and basically cancel me. And um, the editor, Matt Purple, <laughs> reached out to me with the link to that guy's blog and was like, listen, I, I know you did this, but um, do you have anything you want to say to it? And I was basically like, dude, I got everything. I've got um, MP3s of all the people who I interviewed in there. I have my notes if you want to see my handwritten notes. Uh, I've got photos that are uh, stamped with the location as well as the time and the date. And I'm also on video, which was filmed live on Facebook on News to Share. So I've got, you know, a credible witness. And basically what that did was that allowed me to cover myself. Um, yeah, it's a lot of extra work. Yeah, sometimes you'll never use that stuff. But, I mean, a moment like that, I was like, wow, all that preparation, all the things I did to cover myself. And also, really, it was always meant to just make the story better so I could always go back and refer to things. Um, in that case, it protected me from you know dealing with some crazy dude online. I mean, I've been attacked by people online before, but that was one of the situations where it's like, okay, um, people get in trouble all the time for, you know um, – uh, forging stuff for um, plagiarism for lying about things as a reporter especially as an independent reporter the only person you have to defend you is you you're the only one that can really do it and in that situation like that i was covered in spades and i was like yeah you're good because you're a professional because you're good at what you do so that was definitely something if it if you can at any point i mean just just carry around a gopro at minimum Go to Laura Loomer's style. Just carry a selfie stick everywhere. You can do it. It's easy. And it's not just going to help make your story better, but it's also going to protect you from people with bad intentions. Okay, number six. Just because something seems tedious does not mean it's not worth it. Um, you know, it kind of goes on the last point I was talking about, about why you should have recordings and why you should have a camera and why you should have notes with you. This is one of those things that a lot of people... 
Um, once they realize they actually have to start putting in the work, they actually have to start you know putting in a little extra effort to do what they want to do. They realize that doing this, especially doing this when you're not getting paid, is probably not worth it. Um, one of the things that I did that really helped me out in 2019, I had a big viral moment around the 20. I think no, it was the 2018 State of the Union. Yeah, 2018, 2018 State of the Union. I was working with Andrew Meyer, who was who was working on behalf of Mike Cernovich at the time. This is when Antifa was going around like beating the crap out of people. Um, he wanted to go ahead and see if maybe we could get some Democrat senators, especially around the time of the State of the Union, to go, go ahead and openly disavow the violence of Antifa who were being celebrated by the media and being celebrated by people like Maxine Waters and the worst of them. So I went ahead and I contacted every Senate Democrat via email, and I called a bunch of their offices too. So I made sure I either called or I emailed. I at least did one, and I kept track of it. And that took several days because it was just me. It sucked, and I hated it, and I almost dropped it, especially when I was getting the runaround from people. And the thing is, when you're not working for a publication or something, you're just doing this in hopes of making a story that then you can go ahead and sell to someone, um, you just really begin to think, God, is this worth it? And it was because of all the Senate Democrats I contacted, I only got a response from one. And honestly, this was the only one whose opinion actually mattered. It was Senator Tim Kaine, whose son, whose eldest son was um, arrested for, you know, property destruction and is an open member of Antifa. And Kane sent me a signed letter with his letterhead and everything and his signature there. It was as official as it comes, basically saying, I disavow violence. I support free speech. I don't want anyone to commit crimes. And it was so funny because Basically, his son had been pulled out from jail and released because of who his dad was. So to have him go ahead and say that, that was beautiful. And then what Andrew did was he we worked it into a larger story. He was writing for the Gateway Pundit, and I was featured there, and it went viral, and a lot of people read that. And it was it was just a great moment because that was a really, really big story at, at, um, at, at the time of publishing. And it, it was one of the things that really, you know, validated the work I was doing. And so, guys, just remember, just because something is long and boring and tedious does not mean it's not worth it. That's when the best rewards and outcomes uh, work in your favor. Okay, and that brings me to point number five, get good mentors. Mentors in all aspects of life are incredibly important. I had mentors in the in the military. I have mentors in life in general. But, um, I mean, media is one of those things where everyone is really kind of out for themselves. So when you can find somebody who's willing to kind of take you under their wing and tell you where you're screwing up and tell you how to get better and help you and give you opportunities, that's great. Um, Kelly Vallejos from the American Conservative, uh, you know, she's a good friend of mine. Uh, We worked together a lot over the years on some cool things. Uh, She was a great mentor to me. I started as an editorial assistant for a little bit. Um, after I graduated from high school and then because of 
stuff, I had to leave because I, I wasn't able to, you know, make my regular hours. So I was basically like, hey, I've got this family stuff and life stuff and other things going on. I got to leave. But after that, we kept in contact. I helped them with the podcast. I got to write that awesome story about Andrew Yang. And, um, you know, even working at the Times, I still get lunch with Kelly and we still spitball ideas at each other. And I mean, she's a great person to have. Andrew Meyer, for those of you that know Andrew Meyer, you, you remember him as the Don't Taze Me Bro guy. Andrew Meyer was in still is a, a very committed journalist. I know he has another full-time job because he wants to kind of move on from things. But I met him before he was uh, his uh, book, Don't Taze Me, Bro, My Life is a Meme, came out. And Andrew's been great for many things. Um, he's a good friend. He was a great mentor. So I still see him as a mentor. And you know he got me that opportunity to go ahead and basically get – uh, a man who almost became vice president to disavow an organization which his own son was a part of, and that went big. And I mean, I wouldn't have had that if I wasn't working with him. And what you know, what he kept telling me because he could tell I was frustrated was, "Rumsey, you got to work the process. You got to work the process. This is journalism, man. You got to work it." And if I didn't have him pushing me to do it. Um, it, it wouldn't have happened. So get good mentors. They provide you with the criticisms as well as the praise that you need, as well as the opportunities that you won't get elsewhere. So get good mentors and stick with them because they'll stick by you during the thick of it. Okay, number four, be conversational, not interrogative. Um, the first time I ever actually went somewhere, it was a... Um, it it was a ra- it was a rally no it was a protest by the guys that work for Verizon the union that uh, you know all the guys from Verizon work for and they were basically you know protesting pay hours benefits that type of stuff and I had never actually gone and interviewed somebody for a piece before I'd been blogging a lot but I never actually went out and investigated a story and I only had. A list of questions and I stuck with those questions and it was awkward and uh, you know I was asking stuff and I wasn't making eye contact and you know in some of the cases I may have sounded a little bit confrontational with my questions because I was thinking I already knew how the whole thing was but then I didn't and it was it was bad the thing I learned after that was don't interrogate people because one it makes you uncomfortable two it makes them uncomfortable the best thing to do is assume that Okay, this is going to be bad uh, when I say that loud, but trust me, there's a method to it. Pretend everybody likes you. <laughs> I know I'm not the most likable person, but pretend everybody likes you. How do you talk to people that like you? You talk to them politely, professionally. You talk to them like you know them. I have had people who you would not think would be open to me, open up to me about things, whether they're Black Panthers or... Um, you know, mean cops or, you know, politicians. Politicians are the worst people to get <laughs> quotes from. But, um, you know, if you're just conversational with people, they'll open up to you and you don't even have to ask them questions. They'll just spill their life story at you. And one of the things I remember when I was uh, working in the office of the American Conservative, right outside our window at Lafayette Park was... Um, There was a Black Lives Matter encampment. They basically occupied the park, and they were there rallying and stuff. 
And, you know, everyone in the office is like, oh, I don't have a story to cover. But I was like, there's a story outside the window. So I, I went out and I, you know, basically wanted to know what what's really going on with Black Lives Matter. This was around the time that kind of began to fade away. It, it seems weird thinking about it. But, yeah, it did basically kind of end. And this is in a post-Charlottesville world, too. So, I mean, it was those type of things were still really tense. Um, people still people like to think that it's always going to be at like you know threat level midnight type of tense behaviors, but I mean this was this was around the time that people were beginning to kind of mellow out about it, and it wasn't like in your face twenty four seven. But I went there, and I told them, hey, I'm with this magazine. I just want to talk to you. I just want to know you because all I know about you guys is what I'm getting from other people. I want to go ahead and talk to you. And they were nice. They offered to buy me lunch. I, I I said no to that, but they gave me a bottle of water, and that was cool. And I sat down on a bench with one of them for like two hours, and we talked, and he was a cool dude, and I wrote a great story about it. And, um, you know, made a friend in the process. It, it's things like that where it's like if you go there of good intentions and you're friendly um, – People will open up, and I was nervous. I bet they were kind of nervous to have me there. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But, you know, you don't have a conversation with someone for two hours because you're just interrogating them and you don't like each other. It's because he was willing to listen to me and I was willing to listen to him, and we both learned something about each other in the process. And, you know, um, I later on, I, because I left at the time and I had other work to do, I published that at redsea.com later. My awesome conversation with a Black Lives Matter activist. And I was basically like, hey, you know, if you go out and talk to people that you think you might not get along with or something, you might find something there. And I use that everywhere, whether I've gone to Democrat town halls, Democrat rallies, whether I go Moms Demand Action, you know, every town USA rallies. I've never gotten into it with anybody anywhere. And, um, you know, if you want to go viral, the best thing to do is to get in the fights with everyone. But if you come out with a good attitude, you're friendly, and you have a conversation with them instead of interrogating them, usually you'll be amazed what comes out of it. So that's just something incredibly important that you can only really master and get better at by doing so. It's not something that you can rehearse in your head. So just be conversational. Talk to everybody, everybody, because everyone has a story. Uh, three, when you're recording audio from somebody, especially somebody that probably doesn't like you, don't use your phone. Get a cheap recorder from online and record audio of that. Only because in the tense situations I have been in, which haven't been many, uh, people like to push your phone away. And I know people that will smack your phone. When I was a mall cop, I saw um, one of my other uh, colleagues texting our boss because this woman was yelling at him, so he was going to bring him down. And she felt like he was ignoring her, so she smacked his hand and his phone fell on the sidewalk and cracked. And she actually ended up getting in trouble for a, a potential assault, but she started crying. So basically, she paid for his phone to be replaced a few days later, and he didn't press charges. And the uh, company that owned this, the mall, Boston Properties, didn't sue her either. But they could have. But, you know, that was one of those moments that stuck with me. And I do remember people sometimes when they know that the interview is not going their way, they'll want to push your um, push your phone away. Trust me, guys, I'd rather replace a cheap ass recorder than an iPhone any day of the week. 
I've seen reporters and I know people who are uh, cameramen who have had their cameras completely destroyed. Let me tell you, I'd rather you destroy a camera or a recorder than ever destroy my phone. Just don't do it. Don't don't give them the opportunity to go ahead and break something that's really going to screw up your day. It's not worth it. Do not record audio with your phone when you're in the field dealing with people who are getting agitated. Just don't do it. Get a freaking recorder. They are cheap. They have little USB plugins and stuff. They are, you can find them anywhere. Get them on Amazon. But don't use your phone because people will destroy your stuff. Um, two, and this is really kind of an encapsulating thing. I got this from Adam Brandon, the president of FreedomWorks when I was an intern there. You know, Be scrappy, hungry, and nimble. There were days where I would drive hours and hours across the state and across the country in some cases to go, you know, report a story. And all you're eating are just terrible bags of fast food and you're drinking energy drinks. But you don't have really anything going for you. You don't have a team. You've just got the supplies that you could carry on you at the time. But you got to go get that story. And once you do, everything is worth it. So just be scrappy, hungry, and nimble. If you have that, it will work out in dividends. You will see it compound over time. If you have that drive, yeah, sometimes you're going to look like crap when you show up to places because you're tired and you may not have had time to brush your teeth. And I mean, just there there have been times where I definitely did not look like a professional at the time. I I looked like crap. But, you know, sometimes you got to go and you got to go because stories can happen any minute. And lastly, And this is probably the thing that encapsulates everything we've been talking about. Patience and persistence is vital. There were stories, there were events I would spend entire days working on. I would spend weeks working on a story that either wouldn't end up getting published for one reason or another, or just, you know, I worked on it and people weren't interested in it. I remember the thing that really bothered me when I needed to take a break from actually traveling and trying to get news reported. Um, I was trying to write commentary pieces about stuff going on in Virginia. Like nobody would publish me. My local paper wouldn't. Uh, Virginia Mercury wouldn't. I was getting rejection letters from everywhere, and it sucked. And one thing I did was I posted some of those stories on Medium.com. I put paywall on there. And would you believe it or not, these editors who said no one cared about the story, they're not going to publish me. Those blogs went viral, and I ended up actually making money. And it, it, you know, the funny thing is, if I had published with some of those guys, they usually don't pay you the first time around. So I would have given them it for free. I ended up making money off of this stuff, and it's it's just funny when you think about it because it's like why I tell people I'm doing author consultations. You don't need to go ahead and worry about whether people will buy your book. You just have to know the people that your book is for, and they will buy it. You'll find them. But you know, being patient. And having persistence is what's going to go ahead and help you. Because even all those times where I had stories come out that didn't really go anywhere, what I was doing was I was building my own personal capital. I was going and I was creating a portfolio of stuff that really showed people, damn, Remso is serious about this. And eventually, things worked out. (laughs) Um, I, I don't take any of it for granted from when it was Ryan and I uh, starting the podcast in our dorm room in college to when I'm you know traveling across the country in my freaking Kia Soul. I miss that car. I miss the swagger wagon sometimes to when I was interviewing politicians in freaking sweatpants because I 
didn't have a spare suit with me. You got to be patient and you got to have persistence. It's the only way you will succeed. That's the way you'll succeed in anything. But I don't think there are many fields as cutthroat and as vicious and as hectic as media. It's one of the few things in the world where literally everything lives and dies in seconds. It's crazy. Um, I do have some bonus tips for you. I mean, these weren't big enough to go ahead and actually make in the top 10, but they were important enough to mention. So here's three bonus facts. One, your car, make it your mobile apartment. Have snacks in there, have changes of clothes, have a pillow because sometimes you'll have to sleep in your car. If you can learn how to get comfortable in your car, you'll be fine anywhere. I've slept in my car before. Um, you know, my car it sometimes looked like I was a homeless person, but honestly, if you can get comfortable with your car, it's amazing what you'll be able to achieve running around. Uh, the worst thing for me was gas, you know, because when you're not making money, gas and food starts to, you know, tackle up. But really, uh, make your car your mobile apartment. Know how to get comfortable. Because if you can get comfortable with your car, it's amazing what you're willing to do. So, yeah, I mean, definitely do that. I always kept a suit and a tie with me just in case. But in some cases where it's like I'd show up and it's like, oh, I don't want to stick out too much. I also had like what I called like my civilian go bag that had jeans and a T-shirt and a hat and some glasses if I wanted to appear normal. But I also didn't want people who might know me and might not like me to necessarily recognize me. So that that's what made organizing my car and keeping even disorganized sometimes. At least everything was there, especially snacks. You know, napkins too. You always need napkins. Um the the next part, uh, batteries and phone chargers. I can't tell you there's a problem I still have today. You're interviewing somebody. You need to get photos. You only have your phone. Oh, shit. Your phone's dead. Now you're begging for chargers, and you've just missed three hours worth of collecting content. Seriously, bring a charger with you. Bring the whole thing, not just the cable. Bring a wall outlet. Bring uh, additional... Uh, portable chargers that are already charged. All you have to do is plug into a little battery and it charges your phone. Trust me, you can never have enough of those. Always carry those with you when you're covering anything. They are important. It's like breathing air. You need it to live. You need this to get your story done. So, you know, make sure you've got the stuff to charge your phone. And lastly, um, use the skills that you learn as a freelancer to go ahead and make money otherwise because, you know, it's going to cost a lot, but you're also going to learn a lot. You're going to do a lot, a lot of writing. Start being an online copywriter. Offer to write emails for businesses. Offer to help proofread essays for college kids. If you get good at that, you're good. You know, if you're doing a podcast or video work, offer to do editing. Um, you know, I got really good with my camera, so I got paid a pretty good penny every once in a while to go ahead and take photos for people, portraits and stuff. I got good at it. I got paid to go film things. So basically I used all the tools and all of the skills that I had basically used to work on myself as a journalist. I used it for other things to make money. It's amazing the things you pick up. So, you know, you, if you think you've gotten really good at something, there's a way you can make money off of it. Trust me, there's there's people out there who are willing to pay you for it. You just have to let them know you're willing to do it. And if you're going to be doing this, understand you're going to go months without getting paid for a story. Um, you got to make money somehow, so might as well you know make it out of the things that you're currently doing. That's about it. Those are the ten things that will probably change over time, but. You know, I've been thinking of different ways to doing this. Let me know what you think. Leave me a five-star rating and reviews on iTunes if you love me. 
Say nothing if you hate me, but give me that five stars anyway, because you know I'm putting forth the hustle. And as always, check out the other shows at the We Are Libertarians Network. We Are Libertarians, Tad Western, Ginger Anarchy, and The Brian Nichols Show. Everyone is great. Everyone has something you can learn from. As always, I'm Rachel W. Martinez. Good night. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.